Why don't you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 50. Uh, if you've been part of the church, you've been joining us during this locked, uh, over lockdown online, uh, you'll know that we generally spent time going through Mark's gospel recently, but we are now uh, going back to Isaiah. Now, I, I spent a couple of weeks in the summer, a little bit, uh, uh, maybe about a month or two ago, uh, looking at a couple of servant songs. And these are incredible, uh, remarkable passages because they are written hundreds of years before Christ's incarnation, before his ministry on this earth. And yet they describe, sometimes in incredible detail, uh, Jesus' life, his ministry and his purpose. And it's kind of like almost uh, opening a scroll. Imagine this is written 700 years before Jesus, over two and a half thousand years old. And we're looking at it and saying, actually, this predicts, describes the whole trajectory of Jesus' life and ministry in a few verses. It's quite incredible when you look at it. And we're going to look at this, we're going to look at Jesus, and we're going to say, what can we learn from him? And also we're really going to ask it to come and speak to us and say, what does this mean for us as those who, who resemble Christ, as his servants, servants like the great servant? And say, what does this have to tell us about how we live today? So if you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 50, you also see the words uh, lower down on your screen and below the video. Um, Let me read to you Isaiah 50. Um, I'm going to read from verses 4 to 11 and particularly going to focus on verses 4 to 9. So this is actually what's fascinating is even this, this is speaking in the first person. So as Isaiah has written this, but it's but it's but it's Christ speaking through Isaiah. It's written in the first person, the servant describing himself and his ministry. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. This is the Lord speaking about his servant. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Now, as you look at this uh, passage, I realise that as you read it for the first time, you might think not really much of that makes sense to me. How is this describing the person of Christ and his ministry? Well, I want you to focus specifically for a moment as we begin on verse six. And I want you to imagine that this verse in this simple three clauses describes the moments of Jesus' walk to the cross. It's actually a remarkably gives you a vivid picture of the events leading up to the cross. 
It describes physical suffering. He says, I gave my back to those who strike. Now we know there's all sorts of physical suffering involved on the way to the cross, but just think for a moment of Mark 15, when, uh, when almost as an aside, Mark says, uh, Pilate sentenced Jesus to be scourged uh, before the crucifixion. What does it mean to be scourged? Well, the scourge was a, a brutal um, implement of Roman torture. In fact, again, it was just like the cross, it was uh, so brutal that it was the kind of punishment that you couldn't give to a Roman citizen. Um, but it was, a, it was a multi-lashed whip. And on the end of each lash was metal or pieces of bone. And Jesus was uh, beaten with this scourge. And it's almost certain that that, that scourge would have um, lacerated the flesh. Uh, oftentimes, it, uh, the lacerations would be so deep that they would... Um, expose arteries and veins and sometimes even the the organs the entrails of the human body it was such a it would be he would be in an excruciating pain in the moments leading up to the cross this would have led to agony describes physical suffering it describes humiliation says my i gave my cheeks my cheeks to those who pull out the beard now, we don't know from the Gospels about when this would have happened, but it's, I think it's good reason to believe this is not metaphorical. Uh, to have your beard pulled out in the, was, a, was a kind of um, humiliating and disrespectful punishment in the Middle East. Uh, in fact, it was so humiliating um, in um, Second Samuel, uh, where we hear records of the Ammonites uh, t- taking off half the beard of David's servants, and they're told to stay in their houses until their beards grow back because they're so uh, shamed by what's happened. So this would have been a moment of, of and one commentator describes it as gratuitous torture, as a moment of deep humiliation. Actually, we know that the, the moments leading up to the cross, there was lots of humiliation. Think about the way Jesus was brought before a garrison, 600 Roman soldiers, and they, they laugh at him, they spit at him, they beat him, they, they strip him naked and give him a purple cloak and a, a crown of thorns in just mockery of his uh, claim to be d- uh, king of the world. They, they laugh at him, they bow before him in mockery, and they say, Hail, King of the Jews. Think about that moment as the, the garrison would have been laughing and jeering at him. The passage goes on, it says, I hid my, not my face from disgrace and spitting. Of course, we know that the, the cross itself was a, a means of a great humiliation to be crucified, uh, probably naked. They're talking about uh, his garments being divided between them, um, between two criminals. It was a, a death of, of deep humiliation and to be uh, crucified next to these, uh, these men, disgrace. And we know that as he was on the cross, Christ experienced great mocking. As people said to him, he saved others, and now he cannot save himself. Or the, uh, they say, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So this passage gives us incredible detail about Jesus' uh, humiliation and physical suffering on the way to the cross. But as we consider that scene... Of course, you might be asking the question, why? Why did Jesus do it? But I think we're going to come on to that next week. But for the moment, I think the question that's even more pressing is how? How was Jesus able to endure such suffering? How was he able to voluntarily walk towards such suffering? And you've got to notice that, that Jesus in this passage in Isaiah is, is keen to 
show us his determination. You see his perseverance coming through this passage. In verse 5 he says, I was not rebellious, I turned not backwards. Verse 7, therefore I've set my face like flint. You know what flint is? Flint is one of the uh, strongest rocks, the hardest of rocks. He's describing a kind of steely determination to walk towards the Father's mission. Despite the knowledge that it's going to cause great suffering, it's going to be very difficult, he's absolutely marching towards the cross. And we see that in Luke 9. Uh, It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's not kind of passively resigned to his mission. He's actively embracing the mission that the father has given him, despite the humiliation and pain that it involves. And again, you might think, well, kind of big deal. I mean, I know that Jesus was faithful, but I want you just to remember for a moment Jesus's manhood. Very easy when we think about the fact that Jesus was both fully God and fully man, that we kind of discount his acts of faithfulness. But just think for a moment, Jesus was a man like any other, tired, hungry, uh, sometimes uh, thirsty. He loved his mum. That's why he said to John uh, to look after his mum when he was on the cross. He's just a man like any other. And yet, and yet he was so faithful. Think of how many of us experience this kind of opposition. He shows an incredible ability to go against the grain, to ignore his opponents and to remain faithful to his calling. Think about the night before his crucifixion in the Mount of Olives. He's in the garden, sweating blood. Uh, This is a condition that uh, some some people speculated this condition, hematidrosis, sweating blood, which is due to great anxiety and stress. But of course, what's Jesus' response in that moment? He says to the Father, not my will, but your will be done. He's committed to the Father's assignment. He's a model of flint-like faithfulness. Nothing will stop him. I want us to look at this passage. I want us to, in one sense, to see and marvel at Christ's faithfulness. But I also want us to hear the fact that this is prescriptive as well as descriptive. When we read the Gospels, it's very easy to just look at Christ look at Christ and think of him like um, a special person. But actually, you've got to remember that we are disciples. If we're Christians, we are disciples of the master. What does it mean to be a disciple? Well, in, in, in the Middle Eastern time, Jewish time, you would have been walking with the master, looking at his example and learning from him, looking to emulate his example. And so that's who we are as Christians. We're looking at the master. We're looking at Christ saying, how can we become like him? And so I want to lay before you a calling as we look at Jesus's faithfulness in this passage that we might become flinty people, people whose faces are like flint, set resolutely determined to follow the master just like Christ, who show that kind of rugged perseverance, that faithfulness to the father that cannot be um, kind of distracted from their purpose, to become people who persevere against trials, who are unyielding in our obedience, like an army that just keeps on marching, that nothing can stop it to become people who won't give up, to a courageous in the face of opposition. Think about how Jesus was uh, rejected by the authorities, deserted by the crowds, betrayed by his friends, and yet he didn't give up. The question is, how can we have that same determined faithfulness? Just as Christ set his face like flint and marched towards the cross, I want us to become people who are resolutely determined to obey Christ and are unstoppable in our devotion to him. Why is this important? I want to give you a few reasons. First of all, 
I think simply because we look at Christ and we recognise that often we are so far away from this model of steely determination of faithfulness. We, we look at his firmness and his commitment and know how, how often we vacillate, how we're passionately worshipping Christ on a Sunday, determined to give him all are all and then through the week we find ourselves uh, distracted maybe not praying for days um, and lacking that same sense of desire and commitment to the Lord think about how Christ is unaffected by the opposition that he faces and yet so many of us are so shaped by what other people think of us that opposition affects us that people's opinion sometimes controls us or think you just see the way that Christ is walking in step with the father in this passage And how easy it is for us to feel the opposite of that, that we're almost wandering on our own, kind of saying, where is God? Where is his voice? Where God feels distant from us. We so easily feel a sense of despair at our faithlessness, our lack of faithfulness, how easy it is to give in to sin, to give up on the mission of God, uh, and sometimes just to experience deep spiritual apathy. We feel much more weak and flabby than like the flint-like steely determination of Christ. And so the question is, how can we become more faithful like Christ? That's the first reason. Second of all, I'm deeply convinced that this kind of rugged perseverance is the need of the hour. It's precisely what our current circumstances require of us. Many of us, I've spoken to so many of you who experience a kind of weariness right now, who are tired of the uncertainty, the uncertainty of what's coming next, of the lack of normality. Some of you, I've spoken to you, feel like you just want to give up. It's actually in the kind of times we're in at the moment that perseverance is the essential quality that will enable us to weather the storms of life, to weather the trial that we're going through. Many of you feel spiritually weary We've only just started to return to gathering together in person. And, we, and I think we've, we've suffered from not gathering together physically for six months um, where maybe Zoom life groups feel difficult. Many of us kind of feel like a lack of spiritual fervor. Question is, how will you persevere? How will you endure when you feel like that? Actually, it's not just now, really. I think in this kind of endurance, this kind of perseverance is the great challenge of the Christian life. It's why the book of Hebrews is full of that, uh, come on, hold fast, persevere to the end. I think about how many of the people at our church are very young. And I'm kind of speaking this to you today, but I'm saying, how will you persevere for a lifetime? How will you persevere for 50 to 60 years in the future? I know so many, I'm uh, in my early 30s and I, I know at least some people who went to uh, who were following Christ wholeheartedly at university and have slowly drifted away from him in their 20s. And it's really sad to see when that happens. So what will give us a kind of flint-like perseverance in the face of the trials of life? I want to find the other reason I think we really need to take this seriously is actually the privilege of becoming like Christ. We were praying about it earlier, but the reality is as a Christian, you've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. That Christ's trajectory for you is to become like him. That is the great privilege of the Christian life, that we start to bear a resemblance to our older brother, that we, uh, that we grasp hold of the reality that we have become a new creation in Christ, that God has given us new desires, a new heart, a new character even, and God is transforming us into the likeness of Christ. 
And actually, if we say if Christ is faithful, if Christ is the one who is, has got this kind of flint-like steely, steeliness about his, his um, a relationship with the Father, then surely we should have that same faithfulness. And actually, the privilege is that's what the Father wants to grow in us. That's what he's already growing in us, and that's what he wants to grow in us. So I want to examine Christ and give you three reasons, three things we can draw out from Christ from this passage of what, how we can have this faithfulness. First of all, we need to remember that you are dependent on the Father. The key to Christ's faithfulness is his relationship with the Father. And when you embrace and live out that same dependence on the Father that Christ exhibits in this passage, then you will also be able to walk in faithfulness. See in verse 4, the way that the Lord has trained and taught him. It says, the Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught the tongue of those who are taught. So this is why the crowds marvel at Christ's teaching. Think about in Mark chapter 6 when Jesus is, is, is uh, speaking in the synagogue and, and the response to people is, where did this man get these, uh, get these things? What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. The crowds can't understand how this untrained man has such incredible, profound teaching. And the answer is because he's received personal tuition at the hands of the Father. It says, and this is beautiful, morning by morning he awakens me. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. It's almost like a picture of kind of private tuition, the Father teaching his son. Like any other child starts life, Jesus starts life in the need of being uh, taught, and in fact, the gospel is described him as growing in stature and wisdom. In fact, in the context of what comes in verse five and six, it almost appears like Christ is being prepared for the great mission that the Father has given him. When you look at this kind of training that Jesus receives from the Father, it would be it would be logical in some sense to be envious of him, to say, "Wow, he's given the wisdom of God straight from the Father." in the secret place, the privilege of being prepared for the mission that God has given him. And yet, I want to say there's no reason to be jealous because this is the very same privilege that we have as we walk with Christ, to walk in this kind of dependence to the Father. See, Christ's obedience to the Father is intended to be a model for us. This posture of dependence on the Father is intended to show us what it looks like to follow Christ. When we read morning by morning, he awakens my ear. It should be true of us too. It's very easy for us to pass over this and go, yeah, yeah, that means, you know, spend some time with God in the morning, read the Bible very quickly, maybe over breakfast or whatever. I want to suggest to you it's much more than a kind of shallow vision of 10 minutes of snatched reading your Bible uh, over breakfast. It's much more than that. You need to see the intimacy in this picture. It's highly personal. Think about he awakens me with his words. Reminiscent of a husband awakening his wife with sweet nothings. Or think about the way a father delights. I'm so excited when I wake up and my son isn't awake. I'm going to go and get him and wake him up. Or not wait, wait till, wait till he wakes up and then uh, go and talk to him and talk to him about the day ahead. It's such a privilege, that sense of, of preparing him, of delighting him. And I think we have the same privilege as a Christian. The father wants to renew your strength each morning. Think about what it means to do this, to be reminded of your identity. Each morning to go, we wake up with all sorts of anxieties and fears and maybe sense of condemnation. And as we spend time with the Father, we're reminded that we're not orphans with something to prove in the world. We're sons 
confident of our identity in Christ, confident of our sonship and the Father's love. We, he reminds us of his mercies each morning. You know, that the man, it's become a bit of a mantra in our house. His mercies are new every morning. As we wake up, as you're reminded by the Father of his love for you. As we live, we, we get the freedom, the power to live as sons with nothing to prove. With no sense of anxiety and condemnation. No sense of beating ourselves up. I think we've forgotten just the privilege it is to experience this kind of intimacy with the Father. Just, I think that when I read this verse, I, I always reminded of the way like a, uh, a coach trains and takes out his Olymp- an Olympic athlete in the morning and gives them, takes them through drills and get, take, gets them doing laps and he's challenging him and he's pushing him, he's imparting wisdom to him. And I think there's a bizarre irony. We live in the world of uh, therapists, of uh, coaches, of mentors, of um, personal trainers, of all sorts of different people who want to speak into our lives. It's, and what I'm saying really is that the Father meets the deepest longings in our life for someone who knows us, who knows us better than anybody else, who has the wisdom of ages, who prepares us with the reality of who we are. Is the one, is the one you're longing for to speak to you each morning. There's a sense to which the Father keeps the Son on task in this passage, the, the way he prepares him with his mission and then he launches him off. I think about Mark chapter 1 where it says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. And Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. There's a sense to which Jesus has all sorts of different voices clamoring for his attention, people wanting to speak to him. And yet it's when he goes to spend time with the father that he knows what his mission is. He says, "Okay, I've spent time. I know I've come here to preach. Sense to which when you spend time each morning with the father, you're reminded of your mission, how easy it is in our life to be in this world, to be distracted by all sorts of voices telling us what they want us to do, of how we can uh, make an impact on this world, of what our kind of purpose is. And it's simply by being of spending time with the father that we're reminded of our marching orders, reminded of our purpose in this world to make disciples, of love our neighbors, uh, to worship him in every part of our lives. And and it's if, if Christ needed that kind of Uh, day-to-day teaching and reminding by the Father, how much more do we need that? How easy it is to be distracted from our mission by all sorts of voices and distractions. And instead we need the Father's voice to remind us of our purpose. We've also got to see here that Christ has the words to sustain the weary. It says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. This kind of weariness will, will feel familiar to some, a sense of feeling discouraged, of just of lethargy, of, of, uh, of lacking an appetite for God, of just feeling like everything just feels a bit more difficult. Maybe we've lost touch from each other. We kind of almost feel everything about the spiritual life, or the Christian life just feels like it just needs a bit more oil, a bit more kind of oomph. And yet this says Christ has the words to sustain and encourage the weary. I think so often our weariness is driven by a kind of underlying sense of of despair, a lack of hopefulness. I think about the way so many of us look around the world and we feel a despair at the state of the world right now, whether it be coronavirus, the division, the anger, maybe a sense of a global leadership crisis of which leader is is up to the challenge of leading the the nations through this kind of um, all the different challenges that we face. 
be very easy to feel a sense of despair as we read the headlines. And yet we need to remember that it is the son who has the answer to that, who can say, actually, don't be surprised when you see all types of conflict, division, uh, a, a society ravaged by those kind of things, because the world is under the curse of sin. Not to be surprised when we see a, a broken world, but also not to despair, because we know that the Christ, the Christ is coming back to bring restoration and redemption to the world. This is not the kind of vain, progressive optimism of the world, which kind of hopes that humanity will kind of sort itself out in some way or another. This is the guarantee of Christ's promise to come and renew the world and to make everything right. We are a people with the best hope. There's no reason that we should be controlled by a sense of despair about the world right now. Think about how often we feel a sense of despair ourselves. You think, oh, I just I feel like a failure. I feel like I've, maybe I know we've, we've kind of uh, long past the days where we could kind of see the, 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 the good habits that we put in place. Many of us feel like we've, we've lost those good habits and we feel a sense of despair when we look at ourselves and what we're achieving. And yet it's only Christ who can give you the authentic verdict on yourself. See, the gospel is the best answer to that because it's thoroughly realistic. It says, yes, sometimes you will get yourself into a mess because your heart is flawed. And you are are in in many ways, the heart is uh, deceitful above all things. Not to be surprised by the reality of sin in yourself. But it also is thoroughly hopeful because it says Christ has given you a new character now, a new heart, new desires, and is conforming you to be like him. There's no need for it to be controlled by a sense of despair about ourselves because Christ has given us the ultimate hope about ourselves. So I think we need to remember that only Christ has the antidote to our weariness and despair. The question when we see this, when we remember this is really, are you listening to Christ? The very real danger is that you try to do the Christian life without walking in dependence to the Father, without walking in dependence to Christ. It's almost like you, need to, you can't ever think that you can go it alone. To attempt to do the Christian life without Christ's presence, without his voice speaking into your life day by day, is to set yourself up for failure. Think about Jesus' words to the disciples in John 15, where he says, Abide in me. The branch cannot bear fruit by itself. This is not some kind of higher vision of the Christian life. Think about what fruit means, the character, obedience, mission. Basically, if you want to be faithful to Christ, you cannot do it without the Christ voice speaking into your life all the time. If we fail to walk without the Father's encouragement, we become anxious and flabby and weak. And the very real possibility that you'll give up in the face of all sorts of trials and temptations The Father has designed you so you need to walk in his presence and without it, you die. I think we've forgotten that we're in hostile territory. I love the picture here of the son being about the father's business and the father is speaking to him and training him and teaching him almost like the way um, a kind of spy in enemy territory is being uh, communicated to by home base. The the son is about the father's business, but the father is training him. And the great uh, incredible privilege is that the same thing happens for us. The son is seated at the right hand of the father and is speaking to us as we now go about his business in hostile territory. The great danger of the Christian life is that you forget that you are in a battle that you need Christ's spirit, you need his word, that you cannot do anything without staying in communion with the Father. 
ultimately when you I can't tell you the future of the next few months of what our life will look like I can't tell you if we're going to experience a second lockdown about our, the state of our jobs and security and all sorts of things but I can promise you that if you walk in dependence of the Father you will be able to face any trial and temptation that comes your way that you will need not be consumed by despair or a lack of hope because you are walking with the Father not to summon up a grit but to walk in daily communion with him knowing your identity in Christ and knowing his love So that's the first point, walking in dependence of the Father. The second thing we need to do when we look at Christ in this passage is to be prepared to suffer with Christ. Faithfulness means being prepared to suffer with Christ. See, note in verse 5 and 6, almost like the authenticating mark of Christ's faithfulness is his ability to suffer. He says, I was not rebellious, I turned not backward, I gave my back to those who strike. So in the same way, I would argue that it's an authenticating mark of the fact that we are faithful disciples, that we are prepared to suffer with Christ. Think about the Passover meal that Jesus has with the disciples. He's preparing them to enter a hostile world. And he tells his disciples that they should expect hatred and persecution. In John 15, he says, if the, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world... It would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Isn't it naive not to expect suffering? Not to expect the rebuke of the world as we follow Christ. Think about Christ for the moment, who he is. He died a criminal's death, rejected and humiliated then, and now some of the world has accepted him and recognises him as as Lord, but others ignore him and scorn him. Why would we expect the response to us to be any different? The whole point is Christ is saying, if they responded to me like that, then they'll respond to you in the same way. So what I'm arguing is that following Christ means experiencing the sting and rebuke of the world that puts us fundamentally at odds with our culture. Think about the way we we live according to a very different ethical system. Of course, we can think all about sexuality and marriage and all sorts of specific things, but actually it's much bigger than that. Think about the way the early Christians faced the rebuke of the Roman culture because they wouldn't bow down to the Roman gods. They wouldn't put Christ in the pantheon and say, you know, Christ is just one among all these other gods. No, they said Christ is the only one we can worship and we will reject your false idols. And the same is true today of Christians, that the reason why we will experience such a a divergence with the world is because we won't bow down to the same idols as the people around us. We won't live in the pursuit of financial gain. We won't be the people who are just obsessively trying to get power for ourselves. We're happy to take the lower place. We're people who aren't just uh, trying to find a kind of uh, sexual fulfillment or a kind of fulfillment in a loving relationship with another person because we found a love that is better than all of those things. So first of all, we live with a fundamentally different posture and orientation. Second of all, there's a universal scope. There are lots of um, organisations in the world, lots of peoples in the world who are very different to the people around them. Think about often the Jewish communities like this, but the Amish of of kind of little groups in the world. But, But often they provide very little, there's very little conflict between them and the rest of society because they live in a kind of introverted posture. But the Christian 
faith, the gospel, means that we are fundamentally at odds with the world because we, ha- we don't have that introverted posture. We are always on looking outwardly. The gospel always pushes us out into society to say we have the answer to the, need, to the, to the reason that you exist. We have the, the answer to, the, to your greatest need. It puts us on a collision course with the people around us. In fact, it's even worse than that. The gospel is, but in itself, inherently offensive. Think about, it says, you are in, in, in a desperate mess and you cannot solve that mess yourself. It challenges the inherent pride of man. It, it challenges that kind of humanist or progressive optimism about the human character and spirit. It says, no, actually the news is far worse. You need a saviour. So the gospel speaks directly to the secular hope of transforming society. It means that really following Christ means we should expect rejection in this world. It means someone who's considering following Jesus must count the cost, must expect that at some point some of their family or friends or whoever may, may react against their, their newfound faith in Christ. And for all of us, I think it means that we should at least expect in this culture uh, a ridicule, a mocking, maybe a criticism, uh, a suspicion, or maybe even a kind of ostracism, a kind of sense of, of being an outsider. And the great danger is that we exclude this from our vision of following Christ. And it's dangerous for a couple of reasons. First of all, the danger of disappointment. There are two types of of costs of discipleship, I would say. One is the kind of cost of obedience, the sacrifice involved of denying yourself in all sorts of ways, of living generously, of, of loving your neighbor even when it feels difficult. That's the cost of obedience. But there's also a kind of cost of distinctiveness, of the rejection, of the mocking, of not fitting in. And if I don't tell you, if you're not mindful of that cost in either way, there's a great danger at some point that you say, well, this just doesn't feel like what I expected. I thought following Jesus was, was kind of only going to enrich my life. And I didn't realize there'd be these challenges. And then there's all sorts of potentials that you might then just walk off and say, this is just too difficult. Or, this is not fair and kind of allow a kind of bitterness to grow in your heart. The great danger is that you don't see the value of Christ The great danger is that we kind of underplay the cost because we don't think that Christ is worth it. We don't think that knowing Christ and the the abundance of his love, of being in in union with him, of knowing him, it makes all of those things feel in some sense trivial. We downplay the cost because we don't think he's worth it. So that's one danger. The second danger is it blunts our witness. The great danger in our culture, I don't think, is a kind of experience of persecution. I don't want you to walk away from this with a kind of Christian victim mentality where you feel like the world is just against us alone and everybody else is, is kind of um, fine. The great danger, I think, is actually worse than that, is that, it's that we try to adapt or fit into culture. And actually, in doing so, we silence our witness in a way, as a way to try and avoid the rebuke of the world. We've forgotten that by nature we are now outsiders and we should in some sense expect the rebuke of the world. The great danger is you, you, uh, you hear the words when Jesus says, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting and you do exactly that. You hide your face from disgrace. You hide your identity as a Christian for fear of what other people will think of you. You hold back from sharing your faith because maybe the person's going to think you're a bit weird. Ultimately, we're doing that because we love our reputations. We love what people think of us more than we love the people we could be sharing with. It's a tragedy that the church is silenced out of a desire to fit in, to become acceptable in the eyes of the world. 
We must be willing to be counted among Christ's Christ's sheep. And in one sense, to experience guilt by association, so to speak, that people will look at us and say, yeah, this guy's a Jesus freak and that's okay. Actually, I think being prepared to suffer will radically change your posture. A willingness to suffer with Christ will mean the people of God look radically different. It's actually that that makes them a kind of unflappable and unstoppable force. It means they're not surprised when suffering comes. They're not obsessing about it, but they accept it as part of life. They're not thrown by it. They're not saying, oh gosh, what does this mean about about Christ's promises to me? They say, no, I should expect suffering in this life, even as I seek to follow Christ, because I follow him, a a suffering servant who suffered, but also because I live in a fallen world. It means not complaining about a minority and status in society, but accepting it and walking through it. It means being prepared to be upfront about their faith. It means we're actually radically honest and transparent about our faith with our friends, with our neighbours, with our work colleagues. We're expecting some level of pushback. We're also expecting opportunities that come with that. We're positively embracing our outsider status. We're not trying to fit in. We're expecting that people will find our views objectionable. You know, think about what's the very worst thing you can do about a bu- by a bu- uh, in response to a bully? You can allow that bully to intimidate you into silence. Um, actually, the, very, the, the right thing when you see, when maybe when you were at school, you, were getting, you experienced bullying. What did they say? They said, ignore them. We've all seen social media pylons and bullying of different things going on in our culture right now. I think the, the, Christ-like, the, the follower of Christ is, has, a, has a rugged perseverance that says, it doesn't matter what these people think. I'm going to continue following Christ, even if it's deeply unpopular. It also means that Christ followers embrace suffering as part of Christ's sanctification plan. That's why James uh, 1 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. The follower of Christ is not thrown by suffering because they can say, actually, God has a purpose in this suffering. Even as we contemplate the prospect of a second lockdown in London and all sorts of different implications for seeing people, We know that we're not thrown by that moment because we know that God has a purpose in all kinds of suffering to grow our perseverance. It's a bit like uh, just at some point during lockdown uh, for about a week or so, or a couple of maybe it's just once actually, uh, Andrew Howe introduced me to resistance bands. And it's kind of like a, a, I can't even describe it, kind of like a a resistance band that that strengthens your muscles. You do various different exercises. You've got to think of suffering like that, almost like a resistance, something that strengthens your muscles of perseverance that sustains you and grows your perseverance such that you can face anything. Being flinty people means not being stopped by the inevitable opposition and by the reality of suffering of of life. Not being surprised, but the ability to keep on going because you trust the Father that he is at work through that suffering, because you know opposition and rejection is part of what it means to follow Christ, and because you know a better verdict is coming. Which brings me on to my final point. Remember that you will be vindicated with Christ. Just as you experience something of the rebuke of the world and you share in Christ's sufferings, you need to also hear that you will share in the verdict that Christ has received from the Father. You will experience vindication with Christ. See, the reason that Christ is able to allow himself to be put to shame in, verse, in, in this passage is because he knows that that is not the final verdict over his life. See, in verse 7, where he says, But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. 
Now, doesn't that sound like a contradiction? Because in verse 6, he's already said he's been put to disgrace. How, how is he able to say he won't be put to shame when he's already experienced disgrace? It's because there's a, a verdict which speaks much louder than the rebuke that he experiences on the way to the cross. Because it's the verdict of the Father. That's why he says, he who vindicates me is near, in verse 8. That's why in, uh, later on in verse 8 he says, who will contend with me? He's speaking, it's almost like you can imagine Christ in a kind of courtroom scene saying, who will accuse me? Who will come against me? Who is my adversary? And then he says, behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? You almost hear the silence. No one is there to respond because no one can declare him guilty when the Lord's verdict over him is righteousness. And listen to this when he says, Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. He's saying all those other voices, the voices of rebuke will disappear, will wear out like a a mouldy piece of clothing because only one voice, the verdict of the Lord, stands forever. And what I'm saying really is that that Christ after the cross was vindicated. First at the resurrection, just as the cross was a kind of attempt to uh, say that Christ was a criminal, a blasphemer, a liar. The resurrection was the proof that Christ was none of those things because he was resurrected. He was the son of God. He was precisely who he was saying he was. And we have proof because he was resurrected. But more than that, Christ's vindication will ultimately come at the last day. When Christ comes back to judge the living and the dead, everybody will see Christ's righteousness. Everyone will see, some will, I assume, experience a grief, a sense of shock as they see Christ and they reflect that they'd ignored him or scorned him or rejected him. And yet this is the righteous Lord. So in Philippians 2, he says, uh, after, his, uh, cro- after the cross, he said, he exalt- the Father exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So Christ will be vindicated, but also we will share in that vindication As a Christian, you're saying you have received Christ's righteousness, that one day the conquering hero will return to make this world his full, to reign fully on this world. And as the conquering hero comes, the saints will be with that conquering hero, will be recognised as righteous with him. They will share in that same verdict from the Father of righteousness, of faithfulness. They will exchange their filthy rags for whitewashed white pure white robes washed in the blood of the lamb that's why paul can say in romans 8 who will bring any charge against those who those who god has chosen it is god who justifies who then is the one who condemns no one christ who died christ jesus who died more than that who was raised to life is at the right hand of the father and is also interceding for us that we will be counted righteous with christ and, and Christians should be transformed by this verdict. It means it gives us a new ability to withstand rejection. We're not bothered by what other people think. We become almost like Teflon, almost like you can throw anything at us, but it just slides off. Because their verdict doesn't matter. The only verdict matters is the one from the Lord. The verdict of righteousness that is guaranteed because of what Christ did on the cross. 
and the, and the voice of approval that we long for, that the Father will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant, when we meet him face to face. It means all the other judgments that life will throw at us, even the judgment that we might apply to ourselves, is irrelevant. The only judgment that matters is the judgment from our Heavenly Father. It means we're not performing for likes or clicks or follows. We're freed from the tyranny of chasing approval. We're not even having to chase accomplishments to pursue success, to kind of justify ourselves in the eyes of the world, because we already have the loving approval of our Heavenly Father. And we know that all the other voices, all the other voices of judgment in our culture will fade away, like, like, that, like Christ says, like a garment uh, disintegrating, because moths destroy Saying all those other voices are irrelevant when you have the verdict of, the heavenly, of your heavenly father. It means you'll walk free of shame. Some, people, some of you will walk like under a dark cloud, uh, sometimes because of things that you've done, sometimes things done to you, uh, sometimes because of where you're from or your background or all sorts of things, of what you look like. That, that often that kind of sense of shame is, is, is a kind of sense of worthlessness, a sense of being dirty, of being intrinsically wrong, of wanting to hide says actually no because you have the the verdict of the father that you have a righteousness that a righteousness that that cleanses you from all sin you are washed clean there's no need to walk under that verdict that you that either you or someone else has applied to you you to yourself no you have a new verdict that washes gets rid of all those other uh, lies that says that you are the lord's spotless and righteous bride it means that the people of God are freed to be faithful. They're no longer obsessing about the approval of the world, no longer obsessing about trying to find the right judgment in, in the eyes of others. No, they're freed to be single-minded in the pursuit of faithfulness to the Father, to pursue obedience even to the cost of the scorn of the world. People who are free to persevere after Christ and his mission. You don't care about any, anybody else's opinion who are able to withstand anything that the world throws at them, any, uh, anything the devil throws at them, because they have one verdict over themselves, and that is righteousness. And they can look forward to the Father's uh, words of approval and affirmation when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. So when we take all of this together, really, uh, saints, brothers and sisters, I, hear, I want you to hear the calling to persevere, the calling to that that flint-like faithfulness that keeps on going and pursues Christ no matter what our lives throw at us. But people who do that joyfully, who do that joyfully because they have the verdict of righteousness over their lives. They carry no shame, no comparison, because they are, and they are joyfully pursuing the Father's mission. Who know that suffering is a reality, but to know that ultimately that suffering will come to an end because they live with the great hope of Christ's restoration and redemption of the world. So don't give up. Walk close to the Father each day with the knowledge that, that one day Christ is coming back to bring, uh, make everything right. Let me pray. I just want to pray for us that we would, that we would become like Christ, that we would become the people who resemble our older brother in the faith. Lord, we see you and we marvel at your faithfulness. We marvel at your willingness to lay down your life for us, to, per to pursue the narrow path, the path of ultimately giving your life, of embracing the humiliation and the cost that the Father called you to. 
And Lord, we want to be a people who persevere after you, who walk in your footsteps, <laughs> who are not affected by the opinions of any others, who are not um, pushed back by suffering, who are able to walk through all sorts of trials and circumstances because they know that they have the verdict of righteousness over their lives. Lord, we thank you that you have given us that verdict. We want to thank you that you have counted us faithful because Christ was faithful. We thank you that we can walk in faithfulness because our older brother was faithful. Lord, we repent of our, our lack of faithfulness. We repent about how easily we are distracted from the prize, from the mission, from this kind of perseverance that you've called us to. And instead, Lord, we just ask that you would come and fill us with your spirit. Lord, we thank you that we have the great hope that you've changed our hearts, that you've made us new people. So, Lord, come and fill us with your spirit. Come and enable us to be the people of God, eager to do what is good, eager to persevere through any trial and temptation because we know that we are walking, running the race looking to Christ, looking to you, our great inspiration. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We're so grateful for your example. Come and help us to follow you, to follow your example in every area of our lives. Amen.